I am going to read Mark 13 again in just a minute. Uh, we looked at that whole chapter last week. We're going to look at it again this week. But before I read it, I want to just give us a little bit of a review. Um, as you'll see, as we reread it, Jesus is talking to his uh, disciples. It's, uh, it's, it's Holy Week. It's the, it's the last uh, few days before he goes to the cross and dies. The, the Last Supper is literally right around the corner. Uh, so too, of course, is the cross. And this is the Olivet Discourse. And so Jesus has went with his disciples out of the, uh, the temple area. One of the disciples you know, said to Jesus, look at this great building with these massive stones. And Jesus said, not one will be left upon the other. That's the beginning of the passage we're about to read. And then on the Mount of Olivet, as they're looking at this beautiful temple, four of his disciples come to him and say, what in the world are you talking about? And Jesus unpacks it for them. And he tells them a number of things. He says, first of all, I want you to understand what's about to happen in AD 70. He doesn't give them that date, but he gives them the things to be looking for when the stones would fall down and the temple would be destroyed. But he also telescopes, if you will, between imminent events in AD 70 and the end, which comes later in this passage when he talks about the day of his return in verses 24 through 27, and then also interwoven along the way things that every Christian in every age should expect. And so everything that Jesus is saying here has personal application for us as well. And at its heart, the application is meant to be comforting. It's not meant to fuel speculation amongst believers. It is Jesus's word of comfort, a forewarning to his disciples that he was speaking to that day as Mark wrote this uh, letter, recorded this gospel, most likely from Peter. Mark's audience was meant to be comforted by it, and so to every Christian throughout every age, and of course, us here today. I want to remind you real quick, I didn't get into this last week, but Let's remember who Mark's audience is. Mark was writing to Christians in the Roman Empire. It would have been in the um, late 50s, early 60s AD. Nero was on the throne and there was persecution widespread right around the corner for these disciples. And, and for the, I'm sorry, for the church in Rome at that time. Sporadic persecution was taking place, but that great fire in Rome that, that Nero blamed on the Christians, even though in all likelihood he said it himself, um, you know, that, that hadn't happened yet, but it was on the horizon. And Mark wrote these words, recording what Jesus spoke, so that the church in his day and age would be comforted, that they might understand what's coming and what the persecution that's coming means. And I think we need to realize that we are more like Mark's original audience than we may realize. I am not saying that physical persecution is right around the corner, but opposition, marginalization, slander, and the like, we should expect these things if we are living public Christian lives. The more public you are with your faith, the more you should expect what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is the norm for Christians throughout the ages. We've had this weird parentheses in America for a couple hundred years that's coming to a close. And we are returning to what Christians have experienced throughout the age between Christ's coming and whenever it is that Christ will return. 
Jesus says throughout this passage, be on guard, stay awake. He says it several times throughout the passage. What does it look like to be on guard, to stay awake? That's what we need to wrestle with. It does mean, I want to say, as we look at Jesus' words, being proactive, not taking a defensive posture. Jesus does tell his disciples that, you know, when the signs of the imminent destruction of the temple come, head for the hills. He does say that, and that did have to happen in A.D. 66-67. But as you look at the passage as a whole, Jesus is not calling Christians to head for the hills. He's not calling us to stick our heads in the sand. Nor is he calling us to try to take back the culture. He's calling us to live proactively as followers of him who are engaged in the world. Professing him, proclaiming the gospel, living distinctly Christian lives. The New Testament as a whole is largely about that. Letters to churches so that Christians in those churches can live distinctly Christian lives, rejecting deception, rejecting falsehood, knowing the truth and living it out and learning to long for the day of Christ Jesus' return. And all that is here in microcosm in Mark chapter 13. Last week, I said there were three things that will remain certain until Jesus returns. Christians will be persecuted for their allegiance to Christ. Satan will attempt to deceive. And Christ is sovereign over all things. Those are three things we looked at last week that that come out of this text. And this week, I want to talk about those three truths and consider what proactive engagement looks like in light of them. So I'm going to read Mark 13. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Normally, you know, we, we stand out of reverence for God's word. This is a very long chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing. So continue to reverence Christ's word in your heart. As we seek to do every week, we won't be giving a visible demonstration of that by standing this morning. So Mark 13, hear the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. So what does it look like for us to be on guard as we seek to stay awake until the day that the Lord returns? And there's three things I want to hit this morning. First, that we are called to live as engaged exiles in the face of opposition. We are called to live as engaged exiles in the face of opposition. Second, we must build a firewall of truth in order to reject the lies. We must build a firewall of truth in order to reject the lies. And then third, we must nurture hope and longing for the return of Christ. We must nurture hope and longing for the return of Christ. But first, live as engaged exiles in the face of opposition. Christians in every age are called to live as engaged exiles. I get that phrase, engaged exiles, from Peter. Peter was there listening to Jesus. He was one of the four who approached Jesus on the Mount of Olives and said, tell us what you mean. First Peter is the playbook in the Bible for living as engaged exiles. I want to encourage you to go back and reread. We, we preached through First Peter in uh, 2019. I want to encourage you to go back and uh, at least read First Peter. If you're going to do anything, read First Peter. Um, go back and, and give that a read. I get the phrase in verse 9 of chapter 2, working my way down a little bit. In verse 9, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people 
for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there's a call to engagement, to proclaiming. We'll see that call to engage again as we make our way through just real quickly. And again, go read this later for yourself. But then in verses 11 to 12, Peter writes this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So again, there's a call to engagement, to live out the Christian faith in a public way so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Engaged exiles. And then chapter two, the rest of chapter two through the first part of chapter three, he gives specific examples of that. Go read it on your own later, but in verses 13 through 17, Peter talks about what it looks like to live as Christians in a, a society in which the governing authorities are opposed to Christ and to Christians. You see that in verses 13 through 17. In verses 18 through 25 of 1 Peter 2, Peter talks about what it looks like to engage in work, to work as employees of oppressive employers in a way that bears witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In, verses, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he calls us to live out a Christian sex ethic in the way in which we engage in our marriage relationships. In verses 8 through 12, it speaks to our unity as Christians and the witness, Jesus says uh, in John chapter 10, that that bears to who he is. And then in verse 13 of chapter 3, Peter calls us to be zealous for what is good. And then you get to verse Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, and we read this. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That is a picture. It's a little thumbnail sketch of the way in which we are called to live as engaged exiles in our world as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, where do we see that back in Mark chapter 13? Well, we, we see it in Jesus' teaching as well. You see it in Jesus' teaching in John 15, 19, this idea of being exiles. Peter, I'm sorry, Jesus says, if you were of the world, this is to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so Jesus taught his disciples that they should expect to be hated by the world, and that he had called them out from the world. They are exiles, if you will. And then that idea of being hated by the world is in verses 9 through 13 of Mark chapter 13. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and then it goes on. We are exiles. We should expect to be opposed for our allegiance to Christ. But where's the call to engage? Where's the call to engage as exiles in Mark 13? And I just read it. Again, let me read it again. End of verse 9. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And then in verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. There's a link that Jesus is making here between a church persecuted 
and the proclamation and spread of the gospel to the far corners of the earth. We are called to live as engaged exiles, not only, as Peter would say in 1 Peter, as those who give a reason for the hope that is in them whenever asked, as those who just live a faithful, distinctly Christian life, but Jesus would say, even when you are brought before those who would oppose you and condemn you, you will actually, as you bear witness to me, be used by me to sow seeds that in God's time and God's way will lead to the furtherance of the gospel until the end of the age. Now, you may say, wait a minute, Mark, we're not being persecuted. I'm not being persecuted. We're not being arrested. No one is putting me on trial for living a distinctly Christian life. But are you sure? If you've acknowledged your faith in Christ, if you are unapologetically living a distinctly Christian life without compromise, you will be put on trial. Maybe not in a courtroom, but certainly in the court of public opinion, at work, at school. Just spend some time talking to our students, college students, high school students, grad students, and ask them what it's like to live a distinctly Christian life, to proclaim Christ in academia. Talk to any of our professors that we have here as well. Go public with your faith and you'll be put on trial. What, what do we do? Well, again, let me remind you of the original audience to whom Mark was uh, writing. They were just normal, everyday people. They weren't philosophers. They weren't theologians. You know, they hadn't had, you know, a lot of uh, classes on apologetics. They just were regular, normal people, just like us. They were going to be brought before tribunals. <laughs> they were going to face persecution. They were going to be forced to give an account. And Jesus said in Mark 13, in that hour, in that time, when that time comes, my spirit will guide you. Peter says, when that time comes, be ready to give a reason for your hope. Don't worry about having all the answers to every objection. Just be able to articulate why you, in the face of persecution and opposition and hardship, have hope. We're not called to win back the culture as if it was ever ours to begin with. Nor are we called to hide our heads in the sand. We are called to live as engaged exiles in the face of opposition to Jesus. Second, we must build a firewall of truth to reject the lies that will come our way. Jesus warns us that we must resist deception. We see it in verses five and six. Jesus says, see that no one, and Jesus began to say to them, verse five, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then over in verses 21 to 22, and then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. False Christs and false prophets. False Christs were just those who were saying, I'm Christ. False prophets, those who are saying, I know better than Christ. Take my word and not his. And all those teachers and all those teachings that have been found in every age and in every place all fail to promise or fail to deliver on what they promise. 
The secularist dogma that we swim in now as a culture is just the latest in a long line of lies. Secularism offers an alternate vision for human flourishing. It has its own worldview, commitment to expressive individualism, the completely unconstrained ability to pursue whatever brings personal pleasure. It has its own utopian vision for the future, what Mark Sayers has called the kingdom without the king. Paul in Romans 12, 2 says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The shape of that mold changes. The contour changes from time to time. At one level, it can always be seen as that which is rejection of truth. But the particular shape of it in our age, and for the last few hundred years in the West anyway, is that of secularism. And Paul says, don't let secularism squeeze you into its mold. That's an active agent that's being forced upon you and upon our children. You don't fall into secularism. The world attempts to squeeze us into its own mold. We and our children are being acted upon, seduced, deceived. How do we resist being deceived? Build a firewall of truth in order to reject the lies. This is why catechesis is so crucial, both for you and for your children. Catechisms such as the New City Catechism help to build a firewall. They help you and your children discern and reject the lies that are being you know, thrust upon them. Colin Hansen recently wrote, someone will catechize your kids. Someone will. Someone is catechizing your children. The schools and the media are teaching them daily. They are bombarding them with a vision that undermines the biblical vision of the true kingdom of God with King Jesus and true human flourishing that is found now as we live in submission to him and fully one day in his renewed earth as resurrected people in right relationship with him and all those who are his own. Jesus said in verse 31 that his words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. His words will not pass away. False teachings will pass away. The secularist dogma and, and failed, seem to be failing already, vision for the future will pass away. Jesus' words will not pass away. Let them be a firewall to protect you and your kids against deception. Know them, and you will know him. Third, we must nurture hope and longing for the Lord's return. Nurture hope and longing for the Lord's return. If there's one thing that's been impressed upon my heart in the last, you know, I think 15 years of my walk with the Lord, it has been the fact that I have not had enough of a longing for the return of Christ, right? I kind of passed through this kind of moralistic Christian phase of I'm right with God based on my conduct. God is as pleased with me as I'm performing for him on any given day. And that is death. 
And by God's grace was brought into a greater understanding of the gospel and what it means to be free. That, that freedom, in fact, is actually having a greater desire and ability to follow Jesus and find in him my heart's fulfillment and longing. But again, it was just too much focused on the here and now. You can't read the Bible, you can't read the New Testament without this sense of being pointed forward to the day in which Jesus Christ returns. Now, getting older and facing hardship, you know, that, that tends, to, <laughs> tends to turn your gaze toward that far horizon. But the Bible's calling us to be looking for the return of Christ always. Always. And we see it here as well. In verses 24 through 27, Jesus is pointing us to that last day. In those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. And what Jesus is teaching at the end concerning the man going on a journey is that he, Jesus, could come back at any time. There's nothing left to happen in the flow of redemptive history except for Jesus to come back. And it could happen at any time. And so Jesus says, we must endure. He calls on believers to endure to the end. That was back in verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. How do we endure? I began the sermon last week with these two questions. How would your life change if you believed everything is passing away? Again, verse 30, Jesus said, heaven and earth is passing away, but my word will never pass away. How would your life change if you really believed that everything is passing away? And how would your life change if you really believed that there is an end that is coming, but only God knows when that end will be? Because that's what Jesus says in verse 32 of our text this morning. If you are not a Christian believer, those two realities that everything is passing away, that there's an end that is coming and only God knows when, those two realities, if you are not a Christian believer, should strike a note of despair for the former and a note of terror for the latter. If everything is passing away, then that means what Shakespeare said in Macbeth is absolutely true, that history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. If you're living consistent with your worldview, that there's not a God who exists, that we're all here by chance, we're just a collocation of atoms bouncing around in the universe, and one day either we'll die or everything will burn up. If you're living consistent with your worldview, you must be overwhelmed with despair. And if there is an end that is coming and only God knows when, that ought to strike a chord of terror in your heart because there is judgment that is coming. Put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Escape the wrath that is to come for those who have rejected him. Acknowledge that you are a rebel before God. You don't just occasionally do bad things. At the core, you are a sinner who has transgressed and routinely transgresses the law of God, who shakes your fist at God and says, I will go my way and not your way. Acknowledge that before God. Receive the forgiveness that he offers to anyone who calls upon him for salvation, regardless of what you've done. Receive his mercy and forgiveness in Christ Jesus and know that when that end comes and when that judgment comes, it will not be 
your record, but Christ's record that enables you to stand. If you are a Christian believer, those two realities that everything is passing away and that the end is coming, they ought to have an impact on your heart as well. And it ought to be to nurture hope and longing for the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will come again. When Jesus died on the cross, the world was shaken in a sense. There was a great earthquake, but Jesus rose so that the world, even though the world and your world is and will be shaken, Christians can have hope because Christ is risen that the world will be made new when Jesus comes again. And so Psalm 30 verse 5 rings true. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Tim Keller tells a story at the end of his book, uh, Hope in Times of Fear, about a chronically ill woman uh, in his church when he was serving as a pastor. There is this uh, chronically ill woman in his church, and people would come up to her and ask, you know, how do you feel? And her response, Keller said in the book, was wonderful. Her response was always, nothing that the resurrection won't cure. That's our hope, brothers and sisters. Our hope is not bound up in things of this world, in things that are passing away. Our hope is found in Christ and in him alone. In him we find the promise, not just of forgiveness of sin now and being uh, knowing that we have salvation at the last day because that salvation is already at work in us by his spirit, but the promise of a world made new. You, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be more fully you on that day than you have ever been. That is the hope of Christianity. Put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to live as engaged exiles? Lord, help us to look around us at the people who are lost and have such a burden that we want to tell them about you. Lord, help us also not just to be people who speak, but people who live. People who are unashamed and unafraid to live distinctly Christian lives. Lives that run against the grain of the culture in which we live. And as a result, we'll bring friction and trials and persecutions. Lord, help us to remain faithful. Help us to live as engaged exiles. Help us to build a firewall of truth in our own hearts and for our children that they may be able to reject the lies that the father of lies consistently bombards us with. And Lord, because you are sovereign over all, because your word is eternal, because your world will be reached and because your people will be kept until the end, help us, O oh God, to remain grounded in our hope in you as we long for your return. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.